0: This podcast was recorded on Ghana country. I would like to pay respects to the Ghana people, past, present, and future. I would also like to acknowledge that this land always was and always will be Ghana land. I would like to pay my respects and acknowledge any other First Nations people listening in Ghana country or around the world. Hey, Alex, thanks for being on the podcast. Sorry, Ali thanks for being on the podcast.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Jamil. Um, So I'll just introduce myself to start off with. My name's Ali Pytoski. I am a public health professional, an epidemiologist, a project manager, a consultant, all sorts of different things in public health. I live in Toronto, Canada, Um, but I love visiting other parts of the world as well and just excited about the opportunity to talk to everyone a bit about my career, my work in public health and excited to uh, talk to others about theirs as well.
0: Yep okay cool so to start I always do an icebreaker and it's a public health question Um, so if you could change one public health issue like like tomorrow with like a your fingers what would it be? Oh my
1: gosh, you're starting off with the tough questions. <laughs> hardest, hardest
0: question in the whole podcast.
1: It's a really tough question because there's so many things. Oh my gosh. Um, I guess if I had to choose, it would probably be some sort of a a basic income program. Universal or, basic you know, income. Basically, giving everyone in the world enough money to mm-hmm. live on and be happy and healthy mm. I think that's you know basically one of the most important mm. factors that impacts health so that would go a long way towards making people's lives better and improving
0: I'm guessing we'll probably discuss that a little bit further down when we talk about your consp- yeah. comparisons between um, Canada and uh, and America um mm-hmm. so yeah now that's uh, yeah I would probably agree is one of my top ones as well um, So. Going into the actual questions, what does public health mean to you? Yeah, that's
1: a great question too. So to me, public health is really everything. And I know that might sound like kind of a call-out answer, but it literally is everything in the world. Everything can be public health and everything is public health. You know, there's the traditional public health system and, you know, organizations that are mandated to do public health activities but there are so many organizations and systems outside of that that impact people's health as well um that a lot of us don't think about as you know necessarily health-related organizations or individuals but like i was talking about before with poverty and income you know that's extremely important determinant of health so you know, really, all of our systems, the environment, behaviors, relationships, families—all these different things going into impacting individuals' health and impacting the public's health. And that's what's so exciting to me about public health: is it's not just one thing; it can really be anything. You know, it—it it can feel a little overwhelming at times, in a way. But I like to think of it as an opportunity that we don't have to feel confined to what's traditionally considered to be public health to be able to impact public health.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. As I said I love that uh, public health is everything. It's how do you describe something that is literally everything that isn't in the general sense of um allied healthcare and like just straight up downstream solutions, yeah. everything else. It's like explaining to a friend who's a social worker and it's like, you should do a master's in public health because what you're doing essentially is public health already. You're just mm-hmm. doing it on an individual yes. level. um, mm-hmm. Doing the exact same thing a public health person would do on a broad scale almost
1: mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, especially, really cool. especially
0: health promotion and things like that where you're enabling people to help keep them healthy um, yes. for longer. um. So, yeah, no, definitely, yeah, public health is everything. Um, yeah. So, you're a multidisciplinary public health leader passionate about health and health equality. Could you talk talk a bit more about why health equality is such a critical issue for you?
1: For sure. Um, so, I really think, like, there is no public health without pu- uh, health equity, and they can't really be separated from each other. Um, unfortunately, sometimes... Our public health systems, I would say, neglect public health equity, unfortunately, but it needs to be included in public health. Because if we're talking about making the whole population healthier, we can't forget about people who are mar- marginalized by you know, different systems of oppression, like racism and classism and sexism and mm. um, homophobia and all these all these different things. Um, those need to be woven into public health, and in fact, they need to be a focus of public health because people have been systematically not given as much of a chance to be healthy, so you know they actually deserve to be given more resources to help them to have the best chance at health, and health equity is actually good for everyone, you know there's the obvious um ethical part of it that you know we just want to help people and everyone deserves to be able to be healthy. But at the same time it also makes sense economically, you know, taking a proactive approach and um helping people to be healthier, giving them the resources that they need, you know, that will save healthcare costs in the long term, um, you know, improve the economy, all these different things. So um, it's really kind of a win-win situation, I would say. It's good for um, people, and it's good for society as a whole, too.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah definitely, yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> kind of backing up a little bit, I didn't really think of how I should put the questions in. I probably should have put this one before this one, but it doesn't matter too much. Oh. Okay. Um could you share um the journey that led to where you are now as a public health consultant?
1: Yeah. Or at least sure. some of your journey. Yeah, please stop me if I go mm. on for too long because it's an interesting journey, but I guess where I would start it would be just growing up, like health was always something I was very interested in. I always knew I wanted to pursue something. In the health field, I was fascinated by health and diseases. I loved watching shows like Mystery Diagnosis and Dr. G Medical Examiner.
0: You I'm like not that sure if anyone system.
1: has seen those. Have you watched them, Jamil?
0: No, I don't think they're available in Australia.
1: Okay. Well, maybe they have similar shows, but Mystery Diagnosis was basically... It was a show um, where people would experience very strange... Medical symptoms, and they would go to all these different health professionals. Sound,
0: sounds like the documentary version of out. Dr. House.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like the real life version of that. And sometimes it would be these very rare diseases that they were diagnosed with, but sometimes it would also be very common things. And unfortunately, they just hadn't
0: misdiagnosed,
1: um, you know, gotten the attention. That they deserved um, from healthcare professionals, you know that they, they weren't being taken seriously and all these different things. Um, but I was more interested in the part about the diseases and what was going on with them, to be honest, because um, I, I guess I like the mystery aspect of it and you know putting different clues together to figure out what's going on with the person. And then Dr. G, medical examiner, and. I won't get into too much detail with this one but basically it was a medical examiner who would look at autopsies um, and people who had recently passed away um, and they would be kind of strange cases of death and she had to do a lot of digging to figure out you know maybe she thought it was one cause of death initially but it was actually something else and again it was kind of a mystery to get to, um, you know, what the end cause of death was. So I was kind of a morbid little child interested in, in those things. Um, but as I was getting older and thinking about pursuing post-secondary education, like I said, I wanted to go into something health-related. You don't know necessarily a lot when, that, when you're that age about the different possibilities that there are, um, so I just thought kind of automatically, oh, I need to do something clinical, like I'll become a doctor, that. I'll go to medical school, which okay. is a great option, um, but I didn't know about all the possibilities that were out there. And fast forward, I decided to do a general health sciences degree for my undergrad, uh, which was a great program. I am very thankful that I chose that because- this in Canada, It was correct? quite broad. Uh, Yeah, University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. Not too far from Toronto. Um, But yeah, it was super broad, you know, I could kind of pursue whatever I wanted related to health after that. But within that program, I got introduced to the idea of public health and the social determinants and all the different determinants of health. And that just excited me so much. I'm like, you know, why have I not really been thinking about this before as a possibility? And it just really resonated with me. I realized I was more of a big picture person who wanted to work on things at a population level rather than individual. And I think this is actually quite a common story for people who get into public health. It's
0: the more podcasts <laughs> you listen to it, and the more stories you hear about yeah. people in public health, the more you realize that no one knows what public health is until it slaps you on the face.
1: Exactly. We really don't, which is... <coughs> Very sad to me. I, it has you know, an advertising problem. Kind of, yeah, we, we do have an advertising and communications problem. So I hope that gets better over the course of our careers. But it's interesting how we kind of end up in public health. So that was a long story to get there. But anyway, got super passionate about public health, um, decided to pursue my master's in it. I specialized in epidemiology. Um, you know, I always loved data, and it kind of went back to that um, mystery piece about, you know using data to solve problems and putting the pieces together to paint a picture. Um, so, after my master's, I worked in a few different roles. I worked in program evaluation, I worked in epidemiology, project management. um but I had always been kind of interested in consulting and What the possibilities of that could look like. Uh, I think I'll get into this a bit more later, but, and as you can probably already tell, I have a lot of different interests and I, you know, like to dabble in a lot of different areas, which is kind of why I'm a public health professional, epidemiologist, project manager. Um, But consulting really appealed to me because of that, like the opportunity to work on. Lots of different projects with lots of different people and stakeholders and different places, so that appealed to me. Um, and what also appealed to me was kind of the independence and the creativity of it. You know, not necessarily being tied to a big bureaucratic organization, but working with a smaller team um, with the opportunity to make change and you know be creative and collaborate. As a team, so that is what brought me into consulting, Um, and I'll definitely talk a bit more about Mm, this. Yeah, few
0: questions, as you know.
1: Public health consultant with Mm. mostly public health, uh, which I'll talk more about after. But that's kind of what got me there.
0: Mm -hmm. Yep. Cool. So um, going into kind of the epidemiology side of things, how did you sign? How did you just decide to blend uh, epidemiology and project management into your career?
1: Yeah, so like I said, I knew I was interested in public health. Um, a lot of master's programs, I knew I wanted to do my master's in public health. A lot of master's programs have different specialties within public health. Some of them are general, um, but I decided to pursue one that had a specialization. Um, and I had a hard time picking one, (laughs) to be honest, but epidemiology to me, you know, it had that data piece that I was interested in and I thought it would help me to kind of refine those skills in data collection and analysis that would be applicable to any sort of job, which I think definitely turned out to be the case. I was never the type of person Who necessarily wanted to be like a traditional epidemiologist, um, you know, focused on collecting and analyzing data as the main part of my job, but I definitely wanted that to be a portion of it. Um, So my master's was definitely quite helpful with that. Um, And then project management, I guess I didn't necessarily set out to pursue project management. In the beginning, but I found it to be a really useful skill along the way. Um, as I was starting to move forward in my career and take the lead on different portions of projects or whole projects, um, I realized that understanding project management and having skills related to it would really help me to better be able to lead portions of projects or projects. Um, So I got some real world experience in that. And then because of that, I also decided to pursue my project management professional certification, um, or PMP for short. So for anyone who doesn't know, that's an international certification um, for project management from the Project Management Institute. So really, anyone can take it. um, you know, you just need a few years of experience in project management, you need to take a course in project management, and then you also write an exam. Um, so I took the course, and then I studied for the exam, and then I got it last year, which is great. Um, I hope in the future, to be honest, that there's, you know, a more healthcare or public health focused project management certification, sort of and maybe there is one that I'm just I
0: not I, aware I, of in, in my bachelor's I'm doing health promotion uh project management as part of my oh, okay. uh, bachelor's that I'm doing now.
1: Oh, that's great. Well I'll have to find a course in that. Um, because as much as I found the project management certification really helpful, a lot of it was not necessarily the most applicable to public health. Um, but you you just have to kind of pick and choose, you know, what are the methods that are gonna be most relevant. To you, um, you know project management, I would say it's not a, an exact science. it's really an art and you kind of have a toolbox of different things that you can pull from and use, um, but it's not going to look the same for every project. and then you know there's so many different variables that change from project to project. So I'd say the most important thing is to be adaptive to the context and what's going to work for that particular project.
0: Yeah. yeah, no, definitely, yeah. Um, I think it's a bit similar for me because do, I've done a lot of design thinking. So, like, looking mm-hmm. at person-centred design thinking and stuff like that. Yes. And I was lucky enough, I had an elective in that, and I was like, okay, I'll give it a go. It seemed like an interesting topic. And it's interesting how a lot of those... Um, similar things like the project management, the design thinking, all those. Although in a lot of cases they aren't directly related to public health, like they aren't public health focused, mm-hmm. those tools yeah. can be put into anywhere in public health almost. Like, like for instance, mm-hmm. I, when I'm doing a, pr- a program one day, I can use those that knowledge that I had from my design thinking in creating mm-hmm. tailored v- good programs. Um, especially yeah. for minority groups who are often kind of often don't get enough uh, attention when programs are created. They're often created quite poorly, as you know, and you get issues yes. where, like in Australia, I don't know if you've heard of the Northern Territory intervention or anything like that, but you get problems like that where they well, okay. the, yeah. the government reads a and they, um, a um um like some. Paper and it's like, okay, yep, we're going to do this, and they don't actually take much thought into what they do enough thought into what they're doing, mm-hmm. and then they create really <laughs> poorly designed policies which kind of end up stuffing up because it's in direct opposite to one of their other policies or other things as well mm-hmm. mm. yeah so That's yeah, definitely I, I can
1: see how design thinking would be really helpful, yeah with that. I mean, both to understand why programs don't work, and then to yeah. design better ones.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, where are we? Um, so, obviously, going back to health equity sort of stuff, and it's it's obvious that in public health, it's definitely needed. Could you share a share an example of a project where you made strides in improving health equity? For sure. Um,
1: So definitely try to incorporate that into all projects. But the example that I'll share was earlier on in the COVID-19 pandemic, I was doing a project with Toronto Public Health. Um, Basically they needed help setting up a data collection system for when they were doing contact tracing and case management for people who had tested positive through COVID. At the same time, they also wanted to collect sociodemographic data about these individuals so they could understand, you know, who was being most affected by COVID um, and to better target their response. Um, and this was a little bit of an add-on after the fact, I would say. Unfortunately, it wasn't started right up front, but um. They did realize that it was really important to include in their data collection. They just needed a process to get there. so basically we helped them to incorporate sociodemographic data questions into the list of questions they would ask people when they were doing contact tracing, um, you know asking about race and ethnicity, gender identity, sexual orientation, disability um, income, where they lived, all these different things. And then being able to use that data to understand, you know, which groups are being disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, which, as we know, it was racialized, lower income communities. um, The vast majority um, of the time were being disproportionately impacted, unfortunately. And, you know, that's not a surprise based on Everything we know about the social determinants, but it's still really important to understand. Um, and, you know, to be able to make the case to policymakers and politicians that these are the groups that really need extra support. Unfortunately, we keep having to make that case. So having the data helps to do that. And then also, I think one of the most helpful things was being able to show where within the city of Toronto, um, you know, where were the most outbreaks taking place, where were the highest um, like positivity rates for COVID Um, so that they could implement like localized COVID management and prevention strategies in those areas um, and have more community testing sites there when the vaccine came along, like more Local vaccination sites, there um, community ambassador programs, more targeted information for those communities. So, basically, having that information about health equity and the health disparities helped them to be able to make better decisions um, to be able to improve the equity of the COVID nineteen response.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, obviously, you did that with epidemiology and. Um, and then there was probably health promotion people or something similar who then implemented your um for like bear term research or your findings? Yes, yeah yeah. did you find what they did effective enough, or was it a little bit on the kind of um the data's there but they didn't really do, and like do you think they did enough in that sense? if that makes sense
1: yeah um, I mean I don't. Overall, no, I don't think the response was enough because you know we consider we continued to see uh, racialized and low-income communities disproportionately affected. So really, nothing anyone was doing was enough. Um, but at the same time, I do think there were strides made. Um, it wasn't it you know was partially from the public health. Um, department and and the government making those strides but a lot of it as well was really from those communities taking it upon themselves to make their own difference and you know figure out okay like why are we being so impacted by COVID and what can we do to better protect our community against it so um you know them really taking charge of those testing and vaccination sites and making them community led. And I'll talk a bit more about that later, yeah. but
0: yeah.
1: Um, you know, it, it wasn't just uh, the public health authority and government coming in to implement things. It was communities doing a lot of their own response yeah. and knowing what would work for their communities. Yeah.
0: Which leads nicely into the next question, which is about community needs assessments. First of all, just for newer public health students or other people who might be listening who don't know what a needs assessment is, a community, community needs assessment is, could you just do a quick introduction of what that is and then I'll uh, go and elaborate in the question.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, These assessments go by lots of different names, so I'll just list out a few of them, because they're really all a very similar thing, but we often call them, with my current work, community health needs assessments or community health assessments. Sometimes they're referred to as population health assessments, just needs assessments, um, community needs assessments, all these different things. There's probably a lot of other terms for them, but Basically, the main thing is that, and specifically within the health sphere, you are basically doing a current state assessment of what's going on in a community related to health um, and looking at different types of data in order to do that. So one of the big parts we look at is secondary data, which is data that already exists that could be through the census, um, health surveys and surveillance, databases and systems. Um, and that's on things like the social determinants of health and demographics, health behaviors, uh, access to health care, health outcomes. And then we also collect primary data or new data um, through actually talking to the community and hearing from them about what's going on in the community and what are their health needs. So we'll do things like community-wide surveys, uh, interviews with local leaders and community members, focus groups, town halls, that sort of thing, and trying to get a good representation of the community in terms of the demographic profile um, and that we're hearing from marginalized groups as well. Um, And then basically taking all this data and putting it together into an assessment that could take a lot of different forms, we usually make a report, but it could be a web page or something, it could be, um, you know, different like print media, social media, all these different things. Um, And, you know, along the way, try to get feedback from the community and the stakeholders that are involved as well. Um, And then you know, that kind of ends off the assessment part of it. But for us, it's really important as well to do something with the information. Um, So what we call the next step is the community health improvement plan or implementation strategy. Again, that could have a lot of different names as well, but basically taking the data that we found um, and saying, okay, these were the health needs that were found to be the most of a priority for the community, um, you know, can we select a few health needs or a number of health needs that we want to focus on addressing, and how are we going to address them? So, how are we going to use our existing resources to address them? Like, what are we already doing, and then what else needs to be done? How can we collaborate with our community to address those health needs, and then putting that together into the strategic plan?
0: Mm. So, um, kind of going from that, um, some of your um needs assessments. What kind of interesting things and information have you found from from those needs assessments? Anything kind of stand out in some places that you've done it? Or oh
1: my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> so many different things. Guessing the American um,
0: ones would be a bit scary sometimes
1: yeah sometimes it's uh, every community is different. Like we tend to collect the same kind of basic data for each community, but we also talk to the clients that we're working with, like local health departments and hospitals to see like are there any specific health issues that you're really interested in or concerned about in your community that you want to uh, take a specific focus on, so then we might collect special data there or. You know, use data that they have already collected, which is great. You know, kind of the more data, the better. It just allows us to paint more of a classic epidemiologist. (laughs) Yes, love data, (laughs) but love using it too. Um, But interesting things. Um, I think my favorite part of the assessments is probably talking to people specifically. Like, I love gathering the data through the secondary data, but I think one of my favorite parts is doing the interviews with people and literally just listening to people for about an hour and letting them talk. And often people really enjoy this as well. It's like a bit of a therapy session, you know, talking about what's going on Mm. in their community and what's going well, what can be improved, what they would like to see changed. And we always ask people as well for their ideas for how to make change in the community. And people have, amazing ideas of course they do you know they know their communities the best and then we try to actually take those ideas you know back to the client and say here's what the community said you know definitely consider that at the very least when you're developing those strategies so that's probably where I learned the most interesting things from people you know there's a lot of very personal stories that people tell people um are very open with us which is very kind. Um, but I think that really helps to bring the data to life. You know, we're not just saying, oh, 10% of people have diabetes. We're actually hearing a story from someone who's been affected by that and like why it's such an issue in the community. So yeah, those are some things that stand
0: out. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. Um, so, um, obviously from that, we can kind of tell once again, um, that your work um is like, has a lot of diverse stakeholders um and <laughs> it's and like, that's a good thing um obviously it, uh um how how do you uh create that kind of meaningful and kind of genuine connection with your stakeholders for successful engagement with them
1: yeah Um, I think the most important thing is to listen to people, like I said, and, you know, especially as a consultant who is working with a lot of different communities, and, you know, tries to do sustainable work that's going to be long lasting, but in the end isn't really part of these communities and, um, you know, isn't to be working with them on a long-term basis um i really see it as communities often are already doing great work or they're doing the best with what they have so i think we need to respect that and not act like we're going in and starting from scratch and you know being very authority authoritative like this is what you need to do we need to listen to them and hear about what's going on and what they've already done um and hear about how they want to do the engagement or how they would like to be engaged with um they have great ideas about that um and like i said like providing as many opportunities as possible for that community to share their thoughts about what's going on and their ideas for the future whether that through these interviews, surveys, focus groups, listening sessions, or town halls, just have, having as many um, opportunities as possible, um, and then encouraging that to be a long term thing as well you know, not just at least for us, like every few years when we're doing a needs assessment, but having a place where people can share their thoughts um, on a more long term basis as well, whether that's through like a working group or a community committee or something like that, um, or representation of community members on these various bodies, all these different things. Um, Of course, there's power dynamics at play always within those things. So um, try to reduce the impact of those as much as possible, but Yeah, that would be the thing I would say the most is just listening and as much as we're there to support the community and help them to um, understand the resources that they need to do the work and to hopefully get those resources, um, they're really the experts on their own community. So we need to listen to them.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, So... You just judging by what from what we've talked about, you've obviously had a lot of different uh, jobs throughout your career so far. Um, how have those different jobs, um, and what you've learnt from them influenced your approach to public health now?
1: Yeah, good question. Ah, uh, so they definitely all influenced me, and I've enjoyed them all in different ways. I think the diversity of jobs. That I've had is something I've enjoyed the most and it's really helped me to get a broad understanding of the public health and health system um, as well as kind of how you know government authorities are organized at least within Canada specifically. Um, I've mostly worked within Canada it's really just been the last year that I've been focused a bit more on the states, but within Canada, you know, I've gotten to touch on different aspects of the healthcare system, like primary care and hospitals and community care. Um, I've gotten to work in program evaluation, which I think is really applicable to all different types of public health, no matter what you're doing. It's always going to be an important skill set. Um, you know, also having experience doing more of a purely project management role was really, really helpful. Um, and just honing my project management skills um, and kind of getting that traditional epidemiology experience, um, that was a lot of that was during the COVID pandemic. Um, so it was really kind of that traditional epidemiology experience that a lot of people think about as epidemiology, as infectious diseases of course it's a lot more than that but um that was you know a very enlightening experience to be able to get that experience during the pandemic and to be able to help out with that so i feel like i've brought all those experiences together with me into what i'm doing now which i really enjoy but um i i kind of feel like like in in everything, and specifically in your career. You know, everything happens for a reason, and, you know, your journey is going to take you where it's meant to take you. Um, So I feel thankful for my journey and where it's brought me, but it is interesting to look back at the different places that I've been and the different things I've learned from them.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, So... I had one question planned, but you actually kind of answered that earlier looking at it about kind of COVID-19 and things like that. You elaborated quite a lot in that one. So I won't worry about that one. However, I will ask you because I don't realise I didn't actually put it in here. Um, Your uh, public health consultancy, uh, well, not your, but the one that you work with, um, Moxley, is that correct? Um, Public health consultancy. Public health, um, yes. Because it's not in here, I thought we might have a quick discussion of what what that is.
1: Sure. Uh, sorry, I didn't catch the last oh, part of that Oh, Sorry. I,
0: um, so what what is um uh, Moxley, Moxley Public Health? What do you Yeah. Know?
1: Got it. Um so Moxley Public Health is a small public health consulting firm that is based out of the States. Um it was founded by Stephanie Moxley. Um who's my boss, our CEO and lead consultant, um, and has now expanded into Canada with the hire of myself and my other coworker Alyssa. Um, and then we have some other team members um, and some interns as well. So it's a small but growing team, which is exciting. And we are really specialized in community health needs assessments or community health assessments, like I was talking about before, and then the community health improvement plan or implementation strategy. So I won't go through all of that again, but that's really what our specialty and expertise is. Uh, Specifically, we work with hospitals and health departments on these assessments. So actually in the US, um, hospitals are actually mandated to do these assessments every few years. And for public health accreditation, the local health departments are mandated to do them at least every five years. Um, So it's great for us because there are lots of people that need help with these assessments. They're a lot of work. um, So there's lots of opportunities for us to work with people across the country. And it's really important and meaningful work. You know, Um, it's really important to understand the health of people that you're serving and what their needs are um, and to have a strategic plan in order to address those needs. Um, So I would encourage people to learn more about us. You can check us out. We're on social media. I'll I'll, I'll
0: add some links as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. we'll pass that on to people. But yeah, we love connecting, you know, with other people um, in the field, of course. It's kind of cool. I feel like there's a small but strong community of public health consultants uh, across the country and in other countries as well. Um, And we also do monthly lunch and learns. We're going to be starting those. We took a bit of a break for the summer, but we're going to be starting those up again in September. So we pick like a public health topic and anyone can come and we basically talk about it and have a discussion and like a Q&A portion as well, but we've done a few of them already um, and they're really fun. We did one on um, community engagement and collaboration, data visualization, and one on health equity. I'm not sure what we're going to do in September, but we'll announce that soon. And mm. then yeah, hopefully we'll see some of
0: you there. And if I'm not mistaken as well, um moxley public health is completely woman-led and run correct
1: that is right
0: yep yeah i thought that was thanks for calling that
1: out Yeah, yeah that's super important to us we love it um and the internship program i mentioned is actually called the women supporting women in public health internship program so that's uh for current public health students or recent graduates. um, Question, is that only
0: for people in Canada and and the States or will that be for other people in other places around the world?
1: Yeah, so so far it's just been in the States. um, We had a lot of applicants for the first cohort, which was amazing. We kind of had to narrow it down a little bit. Um, So we went with the States for now, but one of the other reasons we went with the States is just because of the time zones, it's a little bit hard to definitely yeah. work with people in a lot of different countries and different time zones. Um, so that's where we're at right now. But you know, it's not to say it won't change mm. in the future, but we actually just started it this year. Yeah. Um we've had eight interns so far, and yeah, we're definitely gonna continue it in some way. So I'm excited to see what it looks like in the future.
0: Yeah, no, definitely, yeah. Um Excellently closed it. Give me a second. Um, okay, so going on to back to the uh, the normal questions again. Um, you're a strong advocate for data visualisation and knowledge translation. Can you discuss, discuss why this is so crucial and important to public health?
1: Yeah, totally. Um, so I've seen way too many reports over the years that are great reports. You know, there's a lot of work that went into them, they're really well researched, but they end up sitting on shelves or unopened in people's emails. Um, And that's really unfortunate because not only is it a waste of people's time and resources, um, that's often really important and useful information that could be used for public health programs or policies um, or improvement that's just Going unused, and I don't think data visualization is the only thing that's going to solve that problem. But I do think it's part of it. No, people don't want to read long, boring reports.
0: A lot of people don't Um, understand how to read. You know, I've written a lot of
1: long, boring reports in my day. I think probably everyone in the field has, or even as students, you know, it's different when you're writing it. You might think it's super interesting. And it probably is. (laughs) But unfortunately, it's just, it's not going to be as interesting if it's just pages and pages of text. You know, people are busy. It's a lot to digest. So, um, you know, this is something that I'm definitely learning to improve at and trying to get better at. But you really need to make the main messages of a report or a document very clear to people and data visualization is something that can help with that. And it doesn't have to be complicated. Like I said, we talked about this in one of our lunch and learn sessions and we gave people, I think it was five tips for data visualization, like that you can just implement right away. And a lot of it is just really simple things like changing the colors of data um, or pieces of information. To make it stand out, um, you know, making graphs interesting and really clear, not just using like one type of graph, like a traditional bar graph. Um, being creative with your graphs, using icons and infographics, um, varying the size of fonts, using um, like photos, like using
0: Canva as well for, I, for all that like sort of using thing.
1: Canva. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, I do a lot of work in PowerPoint, to be honest, Um, and then also there's a lot of free sites where you can get, I mean, there's great icons in PowerPoint, but there's also a lot of free sites where you can get, like, very good icons as well. We also work with a graphic designer, we're fortunate to, who helps us a lot with that type of thing, but I try to do what I can myself as well and improve my skills Hmm. in that area, but all that to say data visualization makes things more interesting to read and then makes the data more useful because it tells you okay i'm looking at this graph what am i actually supposed to take away from this and how can i use this data and you're not spending you know an hour looking at one graph and trying to figure out what it means so i think that's why it's so important
0: and i assume Kind of an add on to that as well is using more natural language so the general public can understand yes. what you're talking about. It's all well and good to have a graph yes. that is about like the mortality of two of two different pop- t- populations or something like that, but maybe they're from a low socioeconomic area where they don't hear the word mortality enough, and that could that alone could be like what's mortality?
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks Mm. for bringing that up. Yeah, I think using Mm. as plain language as possible and thinking about who your audience is, and especially if it's a broad audience, like a lot of our reports are, you want it to be as understandable as possible to everyone. um, Mm. And using examples, not using acronyms, or at least defining acronyms, that type of thing.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. So, Going on to probably one of my favorite questions of this, um, given your you've worked in both US and Canada, what are some uh, big kind of differences that you've seen uh, about how the countries approach public health?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question. I was really excited to answer that one too. Like I said, I've mainly worked in Canada, worked in the US more recently, um, but of course, living in Canada we have a very close and interesting relationship to the U.S. and you know I thought I knew quite a bit about the U.S. before working there but there's a lot that I've learned within the past year too. So one of the biggest, most obvious differences is our healthcare systems. systems. Um, so in Canada we have what's called universal healthcare although i think universal healthcare is it can be a pretty arbitrary term and it doesn't necessarily include everything of course but being from canada i am very biased and i am very thankful for our universal healthcare you know it covers our basic medical doctor hospital services emergency services you know i don't need to to worry um basically to be able to pay for my basic medical services of course it doesn't include things like um dental care eye care um complementary and alternative medicine allied health um medications a lot of the time so There are a lot of things that you either have to pay out of pocket for, or if people have private insurance, um, that can help to cover that too, Uh, but that's kind of our system in Canada.
0: However, we should mention though, that even though you may have to pay out of your own pocket for drugs in, like, uh, for like, um, well, insulin is the classic example everyone talks about, although that might be, uh, out, out of pocket for the person, it's not, but I don't even know what the price is in America now, but it's a lot cheaper yes. as we know, because it's still subsidized by heavily subsidized by the government, even though it's not yeah. technically part of the of your version of Medicare.
1: Yes, that's a really good point, Jamil. Um Our drugs are quite relatively reasonably priced. Yes, um, unfortunately. Not always, or a lot of the time in the States. Um, But probably most people know about the American healthcare system. You know, it's for profit. A lot of people have insurance, some people don't. And, you know, there's different, many different types of insurance. And then there's a question of will your insurance be accepted at different places and what does it cover? Um, So it has been very interesting um, and somewhat saddening to see you know as a part of the health assessments that I'm doing something that we wouldn't really look at as an indicator in Canada is the proportion of people that have health insurance but that's an extremely important indicator in the U.S. and what type of health insurance do you have and what does it cover and was there a time that you couldn't pay for care and did you have to forego medical care all these different things so Um, it's very unfortunate to see that there are people who unfortunately do have to go without medical care. um, And obviously, that has a lot of implications in terms of health equity. Um, So that's the biggest difference, just purely in terms of health care. But there are other differences too. And I'm not going to sit here and say Oh, we're so great in Canada. You know, the u s. needs to learn from us. I think I've also learned like there are things we can learn from the u s in Canada, too. So it's specifically say about public health. I think the u s is much better at collecting public health data and making it accessible to people. They collect a lot more of it in a much more systematic way. Um, they collect a lot more sociodemographic data. They're much more open about collecting race and ethnicity data. And that's something we neglect a lot in Canada, because we're not as open about talking about race and ethnicity. <laughs> um, and then it's a lot more publicly available. So that has been a very pleasantly pleasant surprise working in the States is just being able to find a lot more data for health assessments and having it publicly available not having to pay for it like we sometimes do in Canada or put in like a massive data request in order to get access to things like a lot of it is just already out there for people to find so I think there's a lot of transparency um which is good so yeah that's that's another difference that I would say lots of other differences but i'll stop
0: there for now Mm, yeah yeah no definitely yeah and um you mentioned as well just the um i said we should definitely have a quick talk about the other one as well right the topic start we started talking about the uh universal income idea um as we know america i actually saw today i didn't realize how low three dollars it was like three dollars fifty a day minimum wage in america that's like sorry an hour sorry that's like it's like not much at all. <laughs> like to put in perspective no. Australia's minimum wage for let like, you to work in a kitchen, cafe, those sorts of places is like about twenty dollars an hour. To put it in perspective of the difference yeah. like
1: Yeah. It, and I don't know exactly what the conversion is, but it's not Canada, it's, it's not that
0: different. Um it's about, 10, it's about ten. It's about ten dollars either way, give or take.
1: Um That sorry, the Australian one is ten dollars. Either US. way,
0: I don't know what it is right now. Oh okay. Um
1: yeah. sorry, I, I'm just curious. I'm just gonna do the yeah. conversion. So okay, so the Canadian one is about eleven to yeah. twelve dollars US. Yep. Yeah. Um anyway, <laughs> that also doesn't help, of course, in terms of mm. Health
0: equity. And so what, what what why is it important to have some form of income? I mean it's obvious but kind of for for those people who might be against the idea of a universal income that sort of thing. How yeah. would you convince someone for like a better word that it's actually a good idea?
1: Yeah. Well, I don't necessarily know the right answer in terms of yeah what the system needs to be I think there's a lot of arguments around that you know is it universal basic income raising the minimum wage like
0: that needs know, to be done right what,
1: <laughs> what is it but the thing that I think a lot of us can agree on is that people need money to live and to be healthy um money affects everything and of course in places like the states it affects GREATLY your access to healthcare, but it also affects your access to other services, um, your ability to afford healthy and quality food and to access it, um, your ability to afford different services that you need to pay for. Um, You know, typically, if you're lower income, you might be working in a job that might be more stressful, or have poor hours, or could be, you know, more physically and mentally demanding and more detrimental to your health. Um, you know, the mm. more you're struggling with money, the more you often have to work and not have time for yourself or time for your family or time to do things that are maybe going to make you healthy. You're just trying to survive and pay the rent and pay for food and pay for things for your family. You know, you don't have the luxury of thinking about things necessarily like your own mental health or your physical health, like nutrition and physical activity. Um, so it kind of just puts you at a big disadvantage in general, you yeah. know, you're not thinking about necessarily you don't know, have the luxury of thinking about oh is the food that i'm gonna eat healthy you're just you yeah. oh, know am i gonna have any food to eat let mm. alone is it healthy um so i could go it, on, it, and, it, on it, and on in, and on in, for yeah in saying it doesn't time. it doesn't help
0: when when most western countries subsidize the burger but not the apple <laughs> yes Yeah. Uh, but yeah exactly
1: right. yeah not to mention the cost <laughs> of healthy versus yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. less healthy food yeah. and, yeah. Um, you know, how accessible it is to mm. people like systematically, um, you know, there's a lot of food deserts and food swamps and yeah. in lower income neighborhoods and um, the lack mm. of transportation in order to be able to get to these places. Maybe you can't afford a car um, or, or, maybe there isn't public transportation Mm. or you can't afford public transportation too. Um, Yeah. So many different things. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we're getting close to finishing up. This is the last kind of question, kind of a two-parter again. So where do you see the future of public health going?
1: Yeah. Well, there's probably a difference between where I see it going and then where I hope to see it go. I'm a pretty positive person overall, um, but unfortunately, I, at the moment at least, I don't see there being a lot of investment into public health and in a lot of places, I actually see there being cuts to public health funding and it's very unfortunate to see, especially um, since the pandemic, but I think there's a perception that, okay, COVID is, over, even though, as we know it's not over and it's still affecting a lot of people um, but it's not considered an emergency anymore and okay, we poured this money into public health for the duration of the pandemic, but it's not needed anymore um, because that's what public health is seen as It's seen as something that only really needs funding when there's a crisis or an emergency when really um It's supposed to be about more of a proactive approach to Mm. I mean partially to prepare us for emergencies and to prevent them from happening in the first place. And then also to take a more positive approach and actually try to make people's health better so that they're not getting sick in the first place. Um but there doesn't seem to be a lot of interest in that by a lot of governments, unfortunately. I hope that changes. I I would hope that we would learn from this pandemic and actually say, okay, we actually need more of an investment in public health. Um, you know, I think people working in public health did their best during the COVID pandemic. Um, of course, mistakes were made, but I think part of the reason that things weren't always done in an ideal way is because public health was underfunded. In the first place, and they didn't necessarily have the resources to address the pandemic well, in an ideal way. not
0: listening so, to the people who actually know yes. this stuff.
1: Exactly, just politicians without any yeah. <laughs> qualifications making mm. um, uninformed decisions about COVID and what needs to be done. Um, so, I would like to see increased. <laughs> investment in public health, um, you know, in terms of pandemic preparedness, but in other areas of public health that I think have been neglected during COVID as well, because everything went to COVID. Um, And I think because everything went to COVID, you know, we we started to see negative health outcomes in other areas like mental health and people, not accessing health care as much during the pandemic and not getting preventive care or screenings. Um, so delays in cancer mm. diagnoses and yeah. things like that. So there needs to be more attention turned back to other important health issues. Um, but I guess in the long term, I am hopeful because even if unfortunately there is an underinvestment in public health, I do see there Being more interested in public health as a whole, I feel like there's more people wanting to study it, wanting to go into it as a profession. And I am really inspired by the next generation of public health professionals. It's really inspiring to um, talk to people and hear about their goals for public health. So I am really hopeful about what it's going to look like in the future because there's going to be a lot of passionate people there. I just hope we have the resources to match the interest in
0: it. Yep. no, definitely, Yep. Yeah. And to finish up, what advice would you give to uh, public health students?
1: Yeah. Um, so I think I'll go back to what I was talking about before with the having a lot of interests. I always tell people it's okay to have a lot of interests. If you don't have a lot of interests, that's okay too. You know, if some people from a very early time they know they have like one very specific interest that they want to focus on even within public health you know maybe they're interested in breast cancer in a specific community in a specific country or something like that and they really want to focus on that and that's awesome and I think they should do their PhD in that subject I think that's absolutely perfect for them but some people are like me and you know, I feel lucky that I found my passion for public health, but I've never felt like within public health, I had this one particular topic that I wanted to focus on. Um, and I would just say to people that that's okay. Um, you might find that at some point, but until then, it's okay to just keep exploring different areas. There's lots of different areas in public health. Um, and, It's okay to kind of be a generalist and be multidisciplinary and dabble in different areas because that can actually help to prepare you to where you're going in your career journey. You know, my career journey is obviously not over yet, but for now I'm I'm really enjoying focusing on consulting. And I feel like having those different experiences in different sectors and different skill sets has allowed me to be a better consultant um so don't worry about nailing down that one specific interest right away um just keep doing what you're doing and enjoy learning about all areas of public health
0: yep yep cool thanks um so thanks for being on the podcast alley it was really good
1: thank you so much for having me it was great appreciate the opportunity
0: yep all right thanks
1: bye